Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. We have uh, this week and next week remaining before we transition into the book of Acts, where really Luke and Acts are the same story. And if you wonder what the movement is, it's children's worship. So the slides behind me tell you what's going on. Kids all the way through fifth grade are welcome to go out now. Luke and Acts are the same story. They're, uh, they're continuous, and so we will, we will move right into the book of Acts here in a couple weeks from now. That last song that we sang, Turn Your Eyes, um, has a beautiful history. Uh, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus is, a, is another hymn that obviously part of this song comes from. But the idea for Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, in fact, just the the notion and the language behind that actually comes from a missionary who most of you have probably never heard of. Her name was Lilius Trotter. She was born in London, England in 1853, remarkably gifted and talented at art and probably, well, very easily could have made a full career out of art. But she felt a calling from God at the same time to reach the lost, and so it caused her to give up her pursuits in England. Responding to the call, she could find no mission agency that would send her to Africa, so she went by herself. She lived among the nationals in the hiddenness of the desert for 40 years, and there in the desert, Trotter knew what it was like to be stripped from every distraction in the world to focus upon the face of Jesus. She had laid her life down for that one purpose. While she was in Africa, she wrote a poem that would later inspire the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I want to share with you just a few words from the poem. It's rather lengthy, and you can go see it uh, if you just Google her name and the poem. It will come up. Never has it been so easy to live in half a dozen good, harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, the following of some profession, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about the good, hiding the best, even more effectually than it could be hidden by downright frivolity with its smothered heartache at its own emptiness. Now, just there's a lot of words, but essentially she is saying it's never been easier to be distracted by the good things in life. She continues, how do we bring things to a focus in the world of optics? not by looking at the things to be dropped, but rather by looking at the one point that is to be brought out. And this is phenomenal. She says it's not necessarily about recognizing all the distractions and trying to get rid of them as much as it is focusing on the one thing or one person you want to be about. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look at Him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from Him And the divine attraction by which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. Helen Lemmel got a hold of this poem and in 1922 wrote the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And we stand this morning singing as beneficiaries of such a marvelous life before God. I want you to focus on sight in Luke's gospel. We've sung about it, we've talked about it, but I want you in this chapter, just as we read together this morning, maybe if you have, I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, I hope you mark your Bibles, unless you have some objection to that, I won't, but I want you to circle maybe every time you see the word see or sight. It's a continuing theme. Luke's gospel is very adamant about teaching us that we must have eyes to see. 
that two people can read the same words and arrive at very different conclusions, but eyes to see Jesus in the midst of this gospel. And so again, we're looking at verses 13 through 35, the Emmaus Road, emphasizing sight. I want you just to notice that language. It is Sunday afternoon in this passage. That morning, women went to visit the empty tomb, and word is getting around. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This, this uh, account is only in Luke's gospel, the Emmaus Road account. Two men who are walking on the road, we know Cleopas is one of them, we don't know the other Cleopas' name is probably just mentioned because he would have been familiar to Luke's audience. But within the story, we see a, a, a major significance on seeing and telling even. And so, so essentially, the post-resurrection accounts in Luke's gospel are full of people who see mirac- miraculous truths and tell others about them. That's the, that's the fundamental bottom line here. Even when those who hear don't believe. The women go to the tomb in the morning, they see the angels, they tell the eleven, but the Bible says that the words seem to be an idle tale to those who heard it. The men on the road to Emmaus, tell, they see and they tell, and then ultimately next week, Jesus appears to his disciples, the same thing happens. Jesus is preparing to ascend to be with the Father, and he's establishing a pattern in this last, in this last few chapters, or this last chapter of Luke that is given to the church throughout all ages. Jesus is establishing a pattern so the world might see him and tell others what they see. That's fundamentally the purpose of the church, to tell others what you see. That is a witness. That is what the Great Commission calls us and leads us towards, to be witnesses to the things we have seen. 
I want to show you the structure of this passage just to, to fall in love with Scripture even more. Every passage, there's so many passages in the Bible that are structured in a phenomenal way. Now, you may not be able to read this in the back, but essentially what's happening in this pattern, in this whole passage, is it's centering on verse 23b where Jesus' life is proclaimed, that Jesus is in fact alive. But the whole progression of this story moves from obstructed eyes towards opened eyes. And everything in between is about the journey there in between. So the road to Emmaus is not... is 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 powerful truth with regard to the eyes. He appears to them. It says that their eyes were kept from seeing. That's called a divine passive, maybe. We don't really know, and you can't tell from the text if this is one of those situations where the Lord closes their eyes or if their own ignorance causes their eyes to be shut. It's not really significant to the passage, though, because the passage is about the journey from obstructed eyes to opened eyes. And so my question is, well, then what is, the, what is the lesson in the text? Not only what do we see from the text, but what is the lesson for you this morning and for the church in order for us to transition from a place of obstructed vision to clear vision? And what is the pattern Jesus gives them? Because it's this pattern that I think is given to the church. It's really important. And again, nothing new under the sun. I don't think anything that's said this morning will be new, but perhaps it will reignite or reemphasize the commitment that we ought to have to these very things Jesus gives us in this text. I believe the experience of these men is available to us. That's what I'm saying. So let's just look back at it for just a moment. What are the, what is the, what are the keys to vision or to the opened eyes that we see in the text this morning? Jesus in, ironically walks up as Jesus and they look at him as though he's the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about his own death. But what does he do? What does he do that causes their hearts to burn? Those are their own words. What does Jesus give them? And essentially is saying, if you knew me here, you would know me now. He's giving them the word. I love how he unpacks the Bible for them. But Jesus sits down and spends great time teaching them the Bible, but not just as a distant document, as a documentary, or even a history. It's all of those things. But Jesus says, if you can see me here, you would know me now. And this is, this is critical truth for us this morning in a room even like this where I imagine 90% of you, if I said raise your hand if you feel like you ought to or desire to read the Bible and intake Scripture more than you already do, I think almost everyone's hand would go up in some form or fashion this morning. I think if, if we were to just look at, like, I think if I were to say, how many of you just don't understand the general gist of Scripture? I think there would be hands going up for that. How many of you, although you know you should read the Bible, just simply don't? I think there'd be hands going up for that. All of this. And so we know it. It's up here. And I think that's the exact issue. Jesus is saying that this is not just a mere academic exercise. It's not just that you're idiots or dumb. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that your hearts have not been awakened in the Word. You have not been connected to me in the word. And if you were, you would see it. You would not be the foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And that's the point here. They fail to see what scripture is really about. They fail to see the big plot, the big truth, the person in the middle of scripture. Again, this is a failure of insight that comes from a failure to embrace the ways of God, not just a, a dumbness about these people. They've not read the Scripture with their heart, for if they had, if they had, they would have seen Jesus and recognized Him, is what the text leads us to believe. To see the Word is to see Jesus. Let me say that again. 
to see the Word is to see Jesus. And I want to just kind of mention, spend a little bit of time here because I think it's, it's really important. To read this Word is to meet Jesus. And if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, this is where you actually get to spend time with Him. It's, it's clear that he pulls out this. To, to Jewish people, these people were familiar with Scripture. They, they may have won a Bible drill or two in their, in their local church growing up. They understood elements of Scripture. That's how they were able to say, we thought you were like Moses, right? And you were going to redeem Israel. But here we are looking the same as we did last week, like nothing's changed. He's saying, I don't think you've been, you've been seeing me rightly in Scripture. As Matt and I were preparing for this, wondering like the, the kind of the, the sad state of the modern church and our failure to, to kind of soak in Scripture and be immersed in Scripture, basically, let me say it another way, we are biblically illiterate uh, in, in the evangelical church now that we, we can't even really d- distinguish truth from a lie. And so as we were studying, Matt and I were we kind of just go back and forth on the text throughout the week, and we were getting together to, uh, to talk through it. And I had Sayla with me. Sayla's my almost two-year-old little girl. And she walks in right as we're discussing this text, and she goes up to Matt because she thinks he's me because she's not paid attention to anything but the blue jeans and the shoes. And we recognize in that moment, like, like this is a really accurate picture of the modern church. Because if we have like a, basically a lack of biblical understanding of who Jesus is and we fail to recognize him in the midst of the world. And so for a child who can only recognize but a little shallow portion of a human, you can really make some big mistakes. And I think the modern church has the same situation because we aren't immersed in the person of Christ in Scripture. We have an inability to recognize him in the midst of the world. That's what I'm saying. Because I don't think we're in love with this. I don't think we're in love with the Scripture. I don't think we recognize it as a story of a, a living story and a person all in one. The Bible is, man, I, I wish I could, like, if you could just osmosis stuff or shake people into, into getting something, I would do that right now. I'd shake everybody I ever see. The Bible is not like a litany of incongruent stories about different people. Let me just correct you. The Bible is not just a book of morality, and the Bible doesn't call you to be like David, by the way. I don't want you ever to be brave like David. I don't want you to be strong like Samson. I don't want you to be like any of those people, and those people don't want you to be like them. They want you to be like the one they're pointing to. You see, every page in Scripture, every person in Scripture, every story in Scripture, every word in Scripture is not really about the people it portrays. It's about the true and better king who is coming. There's a reason that David fails. There's a reason the first Adam fails. There's a reason that Jonah is rebellious. There's a reason that Job can't understand. There's a reason that every one of them, even in the redemptive truth and the redemptive part that they play in history, they are showing and they are pointing to the complete and perfect one who finishes the story. Several years ago, Tim Keller delivered a sermon and within part of that was called, is simply called the true and better. And I've shared this before from this place. But he begins to show how Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of all Scripture. He says that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imparted to us. If you want to read about Cain and Abel, Jesus is the true and better Abel. 
Abel was killed, remember? Who though innocently slain, Jesus has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The first human murder in the Bible, Cain and Abel, right? It's not just a story about two brothers who demonstrate the reality of sin and brokenness. But think about Abel's blood. Innocently slain, yes, but his blood cried out for condemnation and Jesus' blood cries out for acquittal. Ruth, the story of Ruth, brought in by a kinsman redeemer who welcomed the outsider who was Ruth and brought her into the family of Israel, the family of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, not just offered up by his father on the mount, but he was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son who you love from me, now we can look at God taking up his son to the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son from you love whom you love from us. He's the true and better Jacob. He's the true and better Joseph. He's the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. He's the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. That's what Jesus does. The true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. He's the true and better Esther, the true and better Jonah. The Bible's not about you or them, it's about him. To see the word is to see Jesus. This is a book about someone you know. That's the point. This is a book about someone you know. I I don't know what we can do as a church to emphasize this more. We do some things. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, we got free books upstairs. Two of them I commend to you would be these two, Biblical Theology and 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. And listen, guys are worse for this than the women. If you're one of those guys like, I don't like to read, shut your mouth and read. You know what the key to reading is? reading. That's how it works every single time. No, I just fall asleep every single time. Well, wake up, because I bet you don't fall asleep watching football. Maybe you do. Maybe you need a pill. (laughs) Y'all, the reason I commend these two books to you is this reason right here. First of all, guys, with your excuses. The second thing is, this is called biblical theology. How many of y'all think you have a good, solid biblical theology? Or maybe you're like, I don't even know what that is. What is the ultimate theme of Scripture? What is Scripture getting at? That's the idea here. When you open the Bible, are you opening up a, just a, a, a list of, of names and places and events? You're actually opening up a story of four chapters, a story that begins with creation. It continues with the fall. Chapter 3 is the story of redemption. It journeys all the way through the cross. Ultimately, the restoration is the fourth chapter. That's Revelation 21 and 22. It's the same story. It's threaded throughout all these 66 books, and it's teaching the same thing. So, I, listen, it's upstairs at the top of the stairs. We've got a ton of these. Get one of these. Second of all, this is probably not the dude book because it's too long. Um, 30 days. Under, but look, guys, there's pictures and tables. <laughs> so, you're good. 
30 days to understanding the Bible is just that. Sit down, spend some time in it. It shows you the themes of Scripture, the, the, the eras of Scripture, what's going on in the Bible. All I'm saying is, if you have a problem reading the Bible, if you're having challenged by that, there are some real practical kind of hindrances that get in the way, and this is going to help you fall in love with it in a deeper way. You need to do this. You're reading about a person. You're reading a, you're reading a consistent story. And listen, Jesus shows that the church's witness continued, even here in Emmaus, is going to be by opening and seeing him in every page of Scripture. That's how we get to know him. That's how you do it. If I hear one more person say, I don't feel like God's talking to me. Again, I'm full of shut-ups and slaps this morning. He's talking to y'all. Right there. It's like literally having a, a wife or a husband who's traveling and they leave you letters to read and you just say, I just, I just don't know what they think. Well, read it. He's talking to you. He's been talking to you. If you're looking for audible, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, but just don't give me this reason. You don't feel like God's talking to you. He's there. He's present. And Jesus says that he's demonstrating to these men that when you unpack the pages of Scripture, you get to know Jesus. To see the Word is to see Jesus. To see the Word is to see Jesus. But even them, these stubborn dudes, they don't even see him yet. But listen to what happens. Their hearts begin to awaken. There's something going on with this guy. And so they continue into this room. It's, cu- it's custom in this culture for, for you to invite a guest to stay the night. So that's not abnormal. They know he's traveling. They say, come stay the night. He's opened the word to them. He's taught the Bible. He's given them all this stuff. And they sit down and do the next awesome thing that the church has been given. They sit around a table and they eat. That's heavenly stuff. Several years ago, um, the budget for food at Perk, when I came to Perkinsville, the budget for food increased drastically, like three times. And somebody came to me and said, well, we just eat too much. I'm saying there ain't no, there's no such thing as eating too much, like in this context. Yeah, there's gluttony, all that stuff. Don't get fat, that kind of stuff. But, but like there's nothing more beautiful than communion around the table. And I'm not talking necessarily just about the Lord's Supper. I'm talking about sitting down and sharing a meal with other people. The Bible is full of this. This is not just ancillary to the redemptive truth of Scripture. This is leading up to a heavenly banquet, y'all. They're very getting, from the very beginning, the table is this beautiful place that represents a symbol of many things. It's where we nourish ourselves, where we come together, we celebrate milestones, share experiences, create new understandings. But most of all, we tell the redemptive story at the table. And it's fascinating. These guys sit down at the table with Jesus after they've had the script. Man, there's not a better day. Jesus is teaching at the Bible conference, and then you come and you have a meal with the teacher, and he breaks bread, and you finally, look what happens. He breaks bread, and they recognize him. And that's what they tell. Look at the very end of this. What do they report to the 11? They told the 11, verse 35, that how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It's not just an accident that they recognized him in the breaking of bread. That is their witness. We communed with him. And when he broke the bread, this had to be reminiscent of just two nights before on Friday night at the Last Supper. And something about that event, they said, that's him. That's him. Now, isn't it fascinating that, the, that Christ gave his church two ordinances. One of those is baptism. And the other one is to come around the table and partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, as Baptists, y'all, some of us, I don't know, where did it get that Baptists do the Lord's Supper like once a year or twice a year? Or, like, where did it get that the frequency of the Lord's Supper became this thing other than 1 Corinthians 11 as often as you gather? Because it is central that we tell the redemptive story of Jesus' broken body as often as we gather is what Scripture would say. 
Why is that? Because it's more than the pomp and the circumstance and the plates and the, and the you know, there are, mission, there are, there are far-reaching places where they can't have such fancy little cups with that cough syrup in it like we have, um, water and whatever. But the point is not the substance, it's, it's what we're doing in that moment, that God gave his church a reminder to commune and proclaim his death until he comes. So what has he, what do we not have that the Emmaus Road men did have? Nothing. The word and the bread, that's what he gives us. Like that is the most simple proclamation and witness of the gospel, that we commune with Jesus, that we know Jesus, and that we hear him and see him. Commune. So Lilius Trotter asked a question in her poem. How do we bring things to a focus in a world of optics? Not only... Not by looking at the things to be dropped, she says, but by looking at the one point that is to be brought out. It's not about removing all the other stuff as much as it is focusing on the right stuff. And that's what I see Emmaus as. I'm going to open the Word, and we're going to commune together. And if you think about all the stuff the modern church has become, light shows and theaters, and this church, the early church, had the word and they had the bread. And it was from those two things that they just did the simple thing. They said, you know what? They, they brought the word and the bread together. They saw Jesus, and they told people what they saw. That's it. If you see them, you tell the world what you see. When we talk about our church context, and we talk about loving what Jesus loves, doing what Jesus does, and ultimately a vision of sending a thousand church planners and missionaries to the nations... Sure, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen around that, but at the end of the day, there's nothing more critical that we do to see those kind of things become a reality outside of the Word and the bread and to tell people what we see. Too many Christians and too many churches are operating with obstructed eyes, consumed with optics, distractions, or even worse, too many churches, too many Christians have taken their eyes entirely off of Jesus. But I promise you this, hear me say this, we won't do that. We won't do that. We won't elevate anyone or anything else above this Jesus. Because when people see Jesus, they tell other people what they see. When you, if you have truly seen Jesus, you have told other people what you see and you will continue to do so. If you're wondering why you don't tell people what you see, it may be because you've never seen them. Evangelism is this scary, scary word in our culture. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, if you, have, you don't have a pattern and a rhythm of your life of telling other people what you see, it may be your lack of vision. This is simply what we're called to do. I'm reminded as I was, as I was writing this just last week, I watched We Were Soldiers. It's a 2002 film. Mel Gibson is in it, and he plays Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore. Listen, if you want to get me pumped up, sit down and we'll watch a war movie together. 
Hal Moore uh, led a battalion in the Vietnam War in what was the first major, major battle between the U.S. Army and the Vietnamese forces. They didn't know how many enemy forces were on this particular mountain, but it ended up being a major outpost with thousands upon thousands, 4,000 enemy soldiers that they were taking with a battalion of 400. The battle raged for a few days and came at great cost to America. They won. If you want to say anybody won in that war, they won that battle. And at the very end of the movie, Lieutenant Colonel... Moore, played by Mel Gibson, is surveying the scene. He promises battalion he would be the first boots on the ground and the last boots off the ground onto the helicopter. And he's taken in the scene of, uh, uh, you know, the, the blood and the gore from battle. And a few into the battle, a photographer had shown up to, to, to capture the story of this particular battle. And it's just him and Lieutenant Colonel Moore at the end. And with through teary eyes, he's feeling the guilt and the shame of leading boys into battle and seeing them lose their lives. Hundreds. And he looks at the report, and the report says, what do we do now, sir? And he says, we tell the world what these men did here. We honor their legacy, that their loss may not be in vain by telling the world what these men did here. It's his only hope. Don't let the world forget it. it. It's the same thing we see in Emmaus in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Don't let the world forget what happened here. Don't let the world forget. And this message has not been entrusted to anybody else in the whole world except for Christ Church. It's been entrusted to us because we claim, in accordance with the Scriptures and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we too have seen Jesus. That we too have seen Him. That we have seen Him in Scripture. That we've communed with Him at the table. We've seen Jesus. So let's tell the world what we see. That's the text. I'm closing with this quote again from Miss Trotter. Turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look at him and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine attraction by which God's saints are made even in this 20th century will be lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he has died to win. So, Father, we do, we acknowledge that the simplicity of what is before us is the most profound reality, the word and the bread. And we shall, too, commune with Jesus. That The message of the modern church is the same as the message of the historic church that we have seen Jesus, and he is alive. Father, find us faithful in this, and for the specific applications that I spoke of today, may we be a people who fall in love and are in awe of the word, that grow in discipline day by day to meet and see Jesus in every page of scripture, that we commune with Jesus, we hear from him, that we have a story to tell, and that we tell that story. The simplicity of Emmaus, Father, I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that the very same elements that were present then are present now. 
that eyes will be opened in the same way and through the same means that we too have seen Jesus. And it is in his name I pray, amen.